Forget frequently asked questions. Common sense. Common knowledge. Or Google. How about advice from a real genius? 95% of people in any profession are good enough to be qualified and licensed. 5% go above and beyond. They become very good at what they do. But only 0.1% are real geniuses. Richard Jacobs has made it his life's mission to find them for you. He hunts down and interviews geniuses in every field. Sleep science, cancer, stem cells, ketogenic diets, and more. Here come the geniuses. This is the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with the Finding Genius Podcast. I have Venkit Narayan. He's a professor, part of the Faculty of Global Health, jointly appointed to epidemiology at Emory University. Uh, he's also the Ruth and O.C. Hubert Chair in Global, Global Health. That's more of the complete name. We're going to talk about diabetes and digestive and kidney diseases. So, Venkit, thanks for coming. Thank you, thank you, thank you, Robert. Yeah, tell me about your 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 research. What are you working awesome. on? Yeah, basically, uh, I've I've focused my research for the past thirty years on diabetes, type two diabetes, working at various settings. Initially at the NIH, where I was an intramural scholar with the Pima Indian study, uh, and then at CDC, where I headed the diabetes branch for ten years, and now at Emory University, where I I direct the Emory Global Diabetes Research Center. And a lot of our research is focused on understanding the epidemiology of type 2 diabetes in the U.S. and globally, trying to figure out the causes of diabetes and its pathophysiology, and, 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 and testing interventions for prevention of diabetes and for improvements in quality of care for people with diabetes, and also examining a variety of health policy scenarios. So our work is very global, although we work a lot in the United States, our work is extremely global and we work in several countries of the world. And essentially, it reflects the idea that diabetes today is a global pandemic. It already affects about 435 million people worldwide and is expected to affect another 200 million more within the next 20 years. So it's a major disease in several parts of the world, particularly in the low and middle income countries. Yeah, in terms of the physiology of type 2 diabetes, what are some of the misconceptions you see out there? And what's like the really important reality that people need to understand about it? A number of things. I mean, the a lot of our modern understanding of diabetes really started with the study called the Pima Indian study in Arizona. The Pima Indians are a Native American tribe who are believed to have uh, migrated somewhere from Central Central America, Central Asia about thirty five thousand years ago uh, and wandered their way into the Americas. Uh, and a group of them, after you know, migrated back from South America and settled into the near the banks of the Gila River in near near Phoenix, Arizona, and uh, that population had a very steady lifestyle for uh, centuries, for, for many many centuries, until the early 60s, 1960s, when a survey, an NIH survey, discovered that 50 percent of the population had type 2 diabetes, what we today call type 2 diabetes before the age of 45. And what was uh, intriguing was there had not been much diabetes in that population until the 1920s and 30s. So somewhere in that 30-year period, there seems to have been an explosion of type 2 diabetes in that population. And a lot of it was driven by the loss of their agriculture because they hit, you know, the building of the Roosevelt Dam, you know, loss of you know, the agriculture, sudden changes to their lifestyle, etc. So 
from that population, the idea of uh, the pathophysiology of diabetes that emerged was that a large part of diabetes was being caused because of obesity, and, and that obesity would induce insulin resistance. In other words, would impair the action of insulin, which is the hormone that regulates blood glucose. And that is a very valid and important theory and applies to a very large uh, you know, pr- you know, degree. But of late, we are beginning to find that, there are, that the primary problem might actually be more to do with poor insulin secretion, particularly in populations uh, which are now suddenly developing diabetes, type 2 diabetes in low and middle income countries. So we think the primary problem in diabetes might be poor insulin secretion and overlay onto that adiposity and insulin resistance, and the speed of uh, development of diabetes uh, is, is very rapid. That's, so that's one important oh. distinction to make. What do you mean the, the ease or the ability or the flow of insulin secretion? What would hamper it, for instance? Okay, okay, that's a very good question. So there are a number of possibilities. One could be because particularly in populations that have had centuries of undernutrition, perhaps you know, a possibility is because of nutritional deficiency or other, other factors, various organs have been compromised. And one of the organs compromised might also be the, the pancreas and the beta cells of the pancreas, which are very sensitive, or, you know, little organs. So that could be a more innate kind of thing. It could be genetics. It could be damage to the beta cells of the pancreas during intrauterine life, you know, because of poor nutrition or because of toxins. Those are the possibilities. In the case of type 1 diabetes, it could be because of an autoimmune process. So all of those things might be a problem. So we think poor insulin secretion to start with might be the, the starting point of, of, the, of the pathogenesis of type 2 diabetes. And the other important thing that is happening is we are beginning to see that type 2 diabetes may not be one single disease, but multiple diseases. There might be many phenotypes of type 2 diabetes. And depending on how you count it, it might be five, it might be 100. But you know, there are several phenotypes. And it is very possible that some phenotypes are more affected by poor insulin secretion, whereas certain other phenotypes are more affected by poor ins- high insulin resistance. So we might have these two different well, there's, uh, Yeah, there's many different comorbidities, and some people are prone to some versus others, I'm sure. So maybe that links to different phenotypes of diabetes will lead to different comorbidities too. Yeah, I mean, I think that's, a, that's an important question. That's, again, a question that is being studied. Clearly, the research that's gone on for the last four, five years, four years, starting from Finland, where they you know, showed using their biobank that there are five different phenotypes of type 2 diabetes, and that's been replicated in several other populations. What is interesting is the distribution of the phenotypes might be different in different populations. Like in India, for example, there might be more thin people with the thin version of type 2 diabetes, whereas in the Pima Indians, you might have more of the obese version of type 2 diabetes. And like you said, the phenotypes might have different complication rates. They may have different, we might have to think of different ways of diagnosing them. There might be different ways of treating and controlling their glucose. So all of these are very intriguing questions which is where a lot of our research is currently focused on. I, I didn't hear you say much about diet. Is anyone looking yeah. at diet and how that you know, leads yeah, to diabetes absolutely. and how it can mitigate it? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, like I said, I mean, the, when, I, when I spoke about loss of change of uh, lifestyle, what I was really alluding to was two things. Number one, clearly loss of physical activity. That's a big issue. 
you know, populations had been used to being physically active seven, eight hours a day. And suddenly, you know, thanks to mechanization of transportation, mechanization of labor, there's a lot of loss of physical activity. And together with sedentary habits like television watching, sitting before computers, computer games, et cetera. So that's one, one aspect. And the second is radical, you know, dramatic changes in diet. You know, diets in several ways. Number one, the total calorie intakes have gone up in many populations. And the composition is diet is not, is, not, is not healthy. For example, diets that are low in fiber tend to have a greater risk for diabetes. Diets that are high in refined carbohydrates tend to have a, a risk for diabetes. Diets that are very high in saturated fat tend to have, you know, increase the risk of diabetes. Diets that are low in fruits and vegetables increase the risk of diabetes. So we need to think in terms of what, what's a healthy diet. And it's not just the quantity of diet, which is important, but the quality of diet is also extremely important. So there's many possible uh, avenues of attack. Uh, you have to focus you know, your research somewhere or your, you know, what are you looking most deeply into? Which, which of these mechanisms uh, or what is it about type two that you're like focused on? In? I mean, at two levels. And number one, a lot of our research is focused uh, in terms of how can, you know, one of the great things that has happened in the last 20 years, particularly in countries like America, Europe, et cetera, is once a person develops diabetes, our ability to control it has improved thanks to research. And we are focused a lot on how do you improve quality of care for people with diabetes? And as a result of that, how can you reduce complication rates? So in other words, we're looking at treatment and complications. And that's been very, very successful. We are clearly demonstrating that it's possible to improve quality of care for people with diabetes. And as a result of that, it's possible to decrease the complication rates and to increase life expectancy in people with diabetes. So a lot of our research is focused on that immediate issue. How do you deliver better care uh, in different settings? In terms of the causes of diabetes and prevention of diabetes, uh, a lot of our focus is shifting more and more towards understanding the role of poor insulin secretion to start with, and perhaps deposition of fat in specific places, such as the liver. We think it's not any fat, it's, it's specifically liver fat or deposition of fat in the liver, which might have a specifically toxic uh, effect. So we, that's the dyad we are trying to uh, focus on, the combination of poor insulin secretion and hepatic fat deposition, and how various diets or physical activity impact that process. And can we also understand the mechanisms by looking at the combination of genes, you know, epigenetics, and metabolic profiles, et cetera. And more importantly, studying the phenotypes using sophisticated methods, such as continuous glucose monitoring, clamp studies, et cetera. So that's where we are looking more granularly at the cause of diabetes from the perspective of poor insulin secretion and hepatic fat deposition. Well, tell me a little bit more about this uh, poor insulin secretion. How is that measured or how is that even contemplated? How do you know? I mean, I've heard of insulin yeah. resistance, but that would be at the point of uptake in the cell. Yeah. Uh, but how do you determine secretion? It's a very difficult, it's a very difficult, a good question and a difficult thing to measure, but there are different ways of doing it. Uh, the gold standard way of doing it uh, might be what we call, uh, I mean, a glucose-potentiated uh, arginine stimulation test. So, what, I mean, it's, it's, a, it's a number of words. So, basically, what we do is uh, stimulate 
insulin secretion through by by infusing glucose and then also you know using arginine uh, and then you measure it's it's a clamp study so you're 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 both delivering glucose and insulin and then you're trying to figure out how much of glucose you need to do to achieve homeostasis and there are it's a complex way but there's it's it's called a clamp study that's the gold standard way of doing it but short of that there are tests like the IVGTT an intravenous glucose tolerance test or even a simple uh, oral glucose tolerance test there are formulas you can use based on the glucose and insulin levels to calculate potential you know potentially calculate insulin secretion there is a text test called the mixed meal challenge test that's another way because essentially if if a healthy person had a meal within 10 to 15 minutes insulin secretion kicks in it's called the first phase insulin response and that's the one we are really interested in to measure insulin secretion so that's one way of doing it the other way of doing it is to give people a 75 gram glucose load after an overnight fast and measure their glucose levels at 30 minutes and their insulin levels at 30 minutes so that gives us an indirect measure of insulin secretion so that the measurement oh, well, quick quick question here so i would think the secretion would be in a feedback loop with uptake and usage so if you've got someone two people same insulin secretion but one has significant resistance i would think that feedback loop would very quickly tamp down the insulin secretion or maybe not i don't know but it would misinform the secretion part of it you're absolutely correct and that's why and that's why it's so difficult to measure because you don't know how much of that secretion is because of the feedback versus the innate uh, innate response and that's why the early part of the response is very important and that's also why these clamp studies have very complex uh, protocols where we try to control for that we we try to you know make all other things equal and just try to measure a secretion uh, as as an independent effect so that's you 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 touched on a very important methodological question and that's why the clamp well, protocol is extremely well, difficult yeah well i'm not asking you for diagnosis but i'm just going to give you like an example so like my wife and i both wear cgms you know we're both i guess you consider prediabetic yeah so when i eat a meal my insulin will go up but if it's a bad meal you know my insulin will go high and it'll stay high and come down slowly yeah and hers it'll spike and then come down like crazy and kind of crash yep so we get two completely different profiles yeah what you know just speculate why do you think that would be i mean you know the speculation i think you know one possible you know like i said different phenotypes have different patterns number one one possibility is one of you you know particularly where the insulin levels goes up very high very soon that person probably has fairly good insulin secretion you know to start with that may be why the glucose levels are going up whereas the other person might be more insulin resistant it's possible again one needs to examine the the, the profile more carefully so those are some of the subtleties that are that that we have to understand from the from from the from what happens in a cgm for example yeah If you like this podcast, please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes. Yeah, I, you know, in the CGM, I can see how useful they are. You get all kinds of differences and nuances that you never see. Like, you know, when I go to sleep, I'll see the the uh, glucose trend down, and then at a certain time in the morning, it'll it'll come up. Yeah. Sometimes it continues rising, sometimes it doesn't. But yeah, do you don't have any insights into yeah. uh, some of these patterns. definitely i mean i think number of things number one you know the 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 last meal definitely plays a role 
So suppose you're going to have a meal very close to bedtime. Uh, you know, you are, uh, you are, you are challenging your, your insulin, insulin production at night. So that's one, that's, one, that's one thing to remember, your meal patterns and your physical activity patterns during the day, particularly during, you know, just before you go to bed, may have an in, influence on that. The second, of course, is what we call a diurnal rhythm. The body's uh, production of steroids you know, is different. And so you know, there, there, there is a rhythm at night where at certain times in the night there is you know, secretion of, of steroids, which, which can have an influence on meta- metabolism. So that's another thing that can happen. And the third is, as bodies, glucose levels go down a lot during early mornings, there might be a compensatory response, adrenergic response in the body. So it's a very complex neuroendocrine loop that connects all this. So clearly, and the final thing to remember is sleep is a very important thing when it comes to glucose regulation and insulin insulin regulation. Quality sleep and may increase insulin resistance. And also poor duration sleep is, might also be a problem. So all of these things are extremely important. The, the, the issue here is it's, it's a, it's a, when you think about it evolutionarily, glucose metabolism has been finessed beautifully by nature because without glucose, our brains won't survive. So it's a, it's a very strong adaptive homeostatic mechanism that has been built in place. So any little disturbance to that, the body reacts body reacts. So, and so for a long time, one is able to compensate. When that compensation starts going out, goes back, that's when uh, disease starts appearing. So all of the things that you notice at night is a combination of a number of factors. I figured it was. I just wanted some insight into maybe the major drivers of the major drivers during the day and night, you know. Yeah, the major drivers at night really is, you know, the food and exercise close to sleeping your sleep pattern, and also the, the diurnal steroid responses. Okay. Well, yeah, what kind of steroids are released and why? I, I don't want it, want it to be like a, a side journey away from this, but just, so, you, you know. So when you look at cortisol productions tend to peak mm. the wee hours of the morning uh, and why that is the case, you know, there's a lot of reasons for it. But so those kind of things, you know, and, and then, yeah. The body is not static when we are sleeping. There are things happening within us. Yeah, no, I know, I know. Yeah, definitely. So insulin secretion, what, even if you find a difference in people, what would you do? Like, how, how would you modulate that? Uh, you know, the, oh, number of the person has a, you know. Okay, good. Good question. I think firstly, establishing that is important. And secondly, diagnosing those variants might require different types of tests. That's another question. So whether, you know, the standard test, does it pick up those kind of variants? That's a big question that we need to be answering. And thirdly, like you said, the, the type of therapy might be different. You know, there are, there are therapies that you might target for improving secretion, and there are therapies that you might target for improving insulin resistance. So that order of, that te- order of those therapies might change a lot depending on, depending on the type of uh, diabetes we're talking type 2 diabetes you're talking about. And finally, like you earlier mentioned, the prognosis might be different. The, the type of complications might be different. So knowing the type allows you to look for those things and to and to mitigate them. Okay. And then uh, you talked about different phenotypes. What does that mean? You know, what, what kind of types have been identified or, okay. or postulated for diabetes? Okay. A phenotype is basically just, uh, you know, is how, how, how the disease manifests itself. So like one of the phenotypes could be type 1 is a phenotype, if you like. And type 2 in a thin person is, is, is a certain phenotype. 
or they might be type two in older people, might be another type of phenotype, or they might be type two in an obese person would be a fourth phenotype. So there are these different combinations of, of presentations, if you like. Hmm. Okay, very interesting. I mean, would and those are really sound general though. How do you drill down on those phenotypes and then say, okay, well, we can link that with, you know, a pre, they're more likely or predisposed. Uh, exactly. Well, a predisposition yeah. towards the retinopathy or, you know, yeah. neuropathy of the foot. Exactly. I think this is where, suppose you had a large biobank of, of data on people with diabetes and you're able to come up with these phenotypes, analyze the phenotypes, and you can look, you can prospectively follow them either in the biobank or in prospective studies to see who develops what. That's one way of doing it. That's going forwards. The other thing is the etiology. This is where you might want to collect information on genetics, on epigenetics, which is how the genes express themselves, or on metabolomic markers. I mean, glucose is is one measure, but there are various metabolites, which are breakdown products. So you, you can measure those. So that will give you a greater understanding of the pathophysiology, the you know, the, and give you clues to therapeutic targets, etc. Oh, but it's still early days. It sounds like, and there's not really uh, you know an establishment of this yet. Yeah, this is the early days, and I think in the next ten years, five ten years, we're going to see a lot of excitement in this area. This is where we are. We, when we talk of precision medicine, this is exactly uh, you know where we are thinking about where perhaps based on the right combination of information on genes, on, on other factors, you know, regular glucose and other factors, plus the phenotypical information, maybe treatments will be more customized for different people. You know, now these treatments are fairly standard, so we might want to more customize them. If so one person has more of a secretion problem, well, we treat you with drug A. If somebody has a insulin resistance problem, we might treat you with drug B first. Things like that. And like you mentioned, the CGM, your your pattern is different from your wife's pattern. So maybe those kind of things will be taken into account as we make things more finer. You know, I think that's that's where precision medicine is likely to go. Yeah, no, it makes sense. What about uh, looking at people with diabetes longitudinally, people that have had it for six months versus six years or 10 years? Yeah, those is things- anyone looking there and, and what do they see? Those kind of studies have happened a lot. I mean, clearly we know that the rate of complications increase with duration. Duration is a very powerful indicator of risk for complications, you know, over and above everything else. So those things have been studied. Like we know, you know, after a certain number of years, you know, when the risk for retinopathy begins, when the risk for kidney disease begins, those kind of data are already available and have been studied. But I think the bigger question is whether somebody who develops type 2 diabetes at a younger age you know, we're seeing a lot of uh, type 2 diabetes in people less than age 20 or 25, and uh, they have more severe forms of disease. And whether in them complications develop within shorter duration is a big question. And there are some prospective studies happening in that area. Okay, very interesting. So, Venkat, what's the best way for people to learn more about your research? And we didn't talk about the policy side. Actually, before we end, I want to ask you quickly about that. What's important about the policy side of it and the fact that diabetes is exploding around the world? Okay. I think firstly, three or four important things. Firstly, when you look at the burden of diabetes worldwide, something like 90% of the cases of diabetes are in low and middle income countries. But when you look at where the research is happening, 
less than three, four percent of research is happening in low and middle income countries. So there's a mismatch between where the epidemic is and where the where the research is. So we need more high quality research to understand diabetes in several parts of the world, particularly in the poorer countries of the world that are now economically developing, number one. And secondly, the low hanging fruit really is the fact that there are excellent treatments available for people with diabetes, when we, you know, for control of blood glucose, for control of blood pressure, for control of lipids, regular testing for eye complications, kidney complications, treating them early. And we know that implementation of that high quality of care has helped you know, people with diabetes in high-income countries and brought down complication rates. We need to do the same through policy in other countries. For example, in the HIV world, they have this thing of 1990-90. Perhaps we need something similar for diabetes. You know, why is it to, even today, 50% of people with diabetes are still not detected? So maybe we need a target saying, you know, within the next 20, 10 years, 80% of people with diabetes will be detected. 80% of those who are detected will be treated. And 80% of those who are treated will have diabetes well controlled. So that would be, you know, it would improve diabetes quality of care, number two. And thirdly, in terms of, in terms of prevention, we have solid evidence that good lifestyle interventions, improving physical activity, improving diet, can reduce the risk of diabetes substantially. And we need ways of implementing that, uh, both at the individual level, through health systems, and also through food and uh, food and agricultural policy. I think that's where those things need to happen. Okay, well, very good. Thank you. Again, what's the best way for people to follow your research? Because yeah. you've got uh, a lot going on, and you have a good yeah. overview of yeah. all the factors yeah. here. You know, you can go to our website. It's the, it's the Emory Global Diabetes Research Center. Emory Global Diabetes Research Center. We have a website, so you can get a lot of the information there. Or you can check me on my PubMed. I'm listed as Narayan, N-A-R-A-Y-A-N-K-M. So you'll get all my papers there. Those would be two simple ways of, of tracking the work we do. Okay, well, very good. Thank you for coming on the podcast. I appreciate it. Thank you, Richard. Thanks a lot. Bye-bye. If you like this podcast, please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes. You've been listening to the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. If you like what you hear, be sure to review and subscribe to the Finding Genius Podcast on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. And want to be smarter than everybody else? Become a premium member at FindingGeniusPodcast.com. This podcast is for information only. No advice of any kind is being given. Any action you take or don't take as a result of listening is your sole responsibility. Consult professionals when advice is needed.